has been known for what it's against. We want to be known for who we're for. Messiah is for St. Charles. We are for people, not against people. We are a movement, not an institution. We are focused on going there, not just coming here. We are Jesus followers, not just rule followers. We are givers, not just takers. Messiah is for St. Charles. Morning, everyone. We are at the end of the series, and again, we had one line that we wanted you to memorize. So I'm going to put it on the screen up here, and let's say this together. For too long, the church has been known for what it's against. We want to be known for what we're for. We are for St. Charles. And even thinking about uh, the Christmas season, which is going to begin next week, Advent begins next week, and it's going to take us through the month of December uh, even in that series, like if people uh, that you want to invite to Christmas services, we encourage them to go to Christmas for St. Charles. Uh, back when we actually bought the website, we were planning to buy the website Christmas in St. Charles, but then we realized, no, 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 this for vision needs to even be in there. People need to understand that Christmas is for them. It's for their neighbors. It's for our community. It's for their family. Uh, we looked at uh, three particular principles so far in this series, and I want to introduce the last two as we close this out. Uh, the first one was this. We are for people, not against people. And then we talked about we are movement, not an institution. Then we talked about we are focused on going there, not just coming here. And today, I want to focus on these last two. We are Jesus followers, not just rule followers. And we are givers, not just takers. And so I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 15 to focus on that first one. We are Jesus followers, not rule followers. Acts chapter 15. The whole assembly, this is the church, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, Jesus spoke up. James spoke up. Jesus has already ascended to heaven. James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. They had a problem. This had always been a Jewish faith. It was a Jewish faith with a found Messiah, a Messiah who had come to forgive them and to save them. And so all the G Jewish followers of Jesus saw this as a Jewish religion. 
The problem is, what happens when Gentiles, when people, probably everybody in this room is a Gentile, what happens when we want to follow Jesus? And so James speaks up. And this is an important thing that they begin to debate among the assembly. They're debating how Jewish do you have to be? How Jewish do I have to be to be saved? Do I have to eat kosher? Do I have to be circumcised? How do I obey the Sabbath? Who am I allowed to marry? It was rules and rules and rules. And what James is saying in that last line, he is saying, we're Jesus followers, not rule followers. We're Jesus followers. And if somebody believes in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they are saved. You can't add anything to it. And if you try to, you're actually destroying the gospel itself. It is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. This is not of your own. You haven't earned it in any way. There are no amount of rules that you can obey to make it more true. It's already true. And we have to make sure that we don't become modern day Pharisees even today in the church where we start adding rules to salvation. Now, there are rules that we do obey, namely the commandments. You're not to commit adultery. You're not to murder. You're not to steal, not even on your taxes. There are rules that we follow because we want to obey God. We want to follow God. We want to be like Jesus. But yet, none of that has to do with your salvation. And James knew this, and Simon Peter knew this, and Paul knew this. And so what does that mean for the Gentiles? Well, the issue happens earlier in the chapter. It, it says that there were certain individuals who came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses... You cannot be saved. Now, this is one thing with a newborn. But there were people in that crowd that were 15 and 25 and 46 and 70 and 82. That's a pretty high standard. You got to become Jewish enough before you're allowed to follow Jesus. I have a feeling the new member's class was just women. <laughs> Wait, honey, what did they tell me to do? Salvation by surgery? Is that how salvation works? Is that how it works? Peter got up and he said this. And of course, this carries a lot of weight. Peter is a lead disciple of Jesus. He says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Whatever the rules you think we need to obey and they need to obey, we haven't even been very good at following those rules. Peter is admitting up front, we're sinful, we're selfish. We're greedy. We 
haven't been able to do that. And yet this has been our faith, the Jewish faith has been our faith our entire lives. No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. It's by grace that you've been saved. Now, first off, Paul and Barnabas, they're not the only ones who are hanging out with outsiders. Peter's letting them know, like, I've been doing the same thing. And I can testify to the faith of these people. Don't you remember the story I told you of the Roman centurion and his whole family? Are you telling me that he's not really saved? Are you telling me he doesn't have faith? I led him to the faith. I baptized his family. They loved the Lord. They loved the Lord. And besides, can any of us judge the heart? Can any of us judge somebody's heart? Now, I, I can judge the way you dress. I can, I can judge the tattoo on your neck. I can judge your nose ring. I can judge a lot of stuff on the outside. But I can't judge the heart. This is something that I think is really important for Christians to hear to make sure we don't become modern-day Pharisees with our faith. God can purify someone's heart before they purify their life. God can purify somebody's heart before they get their life together. God can purify your heart and your faith before you fix your marriage. God can purify your heart, teenagers, before you figure out who you are. God goes for the heart. God sees the heart. Our tendency is to want people to get their act together before inviting them here. But that's not how it works. That's not how it works for them, and it's not how it worked for us. Then James, the brother of Jesus, chimed in. By the way, I can, I can prove to you that Jesus really is the Savior. You want me to prove it to you? What would it take for you to believe that your brother was the Messiah? It'd take an awful lot. I know my sister would say it would take an awful lot. This, this is the sentence, this is the statement that I think should be posted on the walls of our church. It actually is posted on one of the doors in our church. It's a statement that James says, we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult. We should not put yokes on them. We should not add rules to it. We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. Our mission is to be a church that does not make it difficult for outsiders who want to know God, who are curious about God. We need to be a church that does not make it difficult for the unchurched to find God. When James said this, the church agreed with his message, and everything changed. And then I love this passage. This is verse 30. I absolutely love this passage. So they were sent off, the Christians, and they went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and they delivered the apostles' letter. The people read it and they were glad for its encouraging message. 
this has a lot to do with our vision here at Messiah because it determines what we want to be known for. Take, for example, Coca-Cola. Did you know Coca-Cola is the second most recognizable symbol in the world? The reason is because Coke had a vision. Its vision was to have a Coke within arm's reach of every person in the world. A Coke within arm's reach of 7 billion people, which seems crazy, but I think they're getting pretty close. How do they do it? They were passionate about sugary water. They were passionate about sugar water. And because they believe in sugar water, they are the second most recognizable symbol in the world. Now notice I said second most recognizable symbol in the world. Care to guess what's number one? It's the cross. It's the cross. Now here's the thing. That's a little harder to understand than sugar water. There's a lot of unpacking you have to do in understanding or explaining to somebody else so they can understand the cross. Because some people might associate this symbol, which I love and you love because we know what it means. But some people might associate this symbol with what religious people are against. Or they associate it with some kind of bigotry that they've seen in churches. Or a type of judgmentalism that they've seen in the eyes of somebody who is wearing one around their neck. See, we know this is a symbol of God's grace. A savior, God's own son, who would give his life willingly for the sins of the world. It's the opposite of judgmentalism. It's sacrifice. It's grace. It's how we know God. And yet for some, that's not what they see. So we have a lot of work to do in unpacking the number one symbol in the world. Now, I guarantee you, Coke doesn't think they've reached enough people. There is never a time in a board meeting where we're like, hey, guys, great job. You can slow down for a while. That's not how corporations work at all. And you better not tell me, though, that Coca-Cola is more passionate about sugar water than you are about Jesus. And yet I think oftentimes that's what's happened. James and Peter and Barnabas and Paul, they were passionate about the loss. They loved them because they knew God loved them. And so they prayed that their own hearts would love them more and that they would have the passion to go out and share the gospel. Now, Coca-Cola is pretty passionate. And I think the key is they don't focus on their past success. They think and they dream about their potential, what they can do with it. They don't count the customers they have. They see all those that they could have. For so long, we, when we've talked about Christians, a lot of times we think of it as kind of a who's in and who's out. 
We, we think of Christians as, do you believe or do you not believe? We put people into two categories. But I've come across a discipleship chart that I think is a lot more helpful. It's a lot more helpful because it's more nuanced than that. Because there are people who are not interested at all. And there's some people, though, who, although they're not a believer yet, they're spiritually curious at least. They go to a funeral of somebody they love and they wonder, what happens after you die? Is this it? They're spiritually curious. And you have people who are believers, but there's really nothing attached to that. They, they don't really live out the faith. They're not generous. They don't necessarily attend. They're not a part of something. They don't serve anywhere. They're not really living the life of faith. And there are people who are being discipled. These are people who are starting to add those steps. These are people who are like, I want to worship more regularly. I want to start giving. When somebody talks about tithing, they at least pray about it. When people invite them to be a part of a community group, they want to be involved. They're being discipled. Their faith is growing. And then there's people on the far end that are disciple makers. Disciple makers who are people who have made the commitment and they're living it out and they want to share it with others. And the key to any of these, the magic, the ministry is in the arrows. The ministry is in the movement. The ministry is where you can take somebody who's spiritually curious and your focus isn't necessarily to get them here. Your focus is to get them here. To help spiritually curious people figure out what it means to believe and how they can have faith to believe. The magic is in the movement. And wherever you might find yourself in this, think about that movement that God might want to make with you. If you're somebody who's here and you're being discipled and you're asking, you know what, I really want to make a difference with my faith. God might be calling you to serve. God might be calling you to give. God might be calling you to worship more regularly, meaning weekly. Did you know we're here every Sunday? You can come every Sunday for free. And you're welcome every Sunday. I get to come for two services every Sunday. It's awesome. I get to hear the message twice because I'm hard of hearing. I need it. My heart is hard. I need the gospel to work on me. If, if God's calling you to go from being disciple to becoming a disciple maker, then the magic is going to be in the movement. The ministry is going to be in the movement. That's how God wants to grow your faith. So what's he challenging you with? Is it your worship? Is it your service? Is it your giving? Yeah, I guarantee you he's challenging you with all of it. Now, I want to show you one last thing, and I think this is important. Because there's also a way to divide each of these. The first two are people who are outside the faith. The middle two are those who are inside the faith. And this last one's the key. The disciple makers, they're the people who lead the faith. And if we are going to make a dent in the lost in St. Charles County and this whole area, by the way, if you don't live in St. Charles County, like you're in Wildwood or something, we're including you in this. And when we talk about being for St. Charles, sometimes that's going to mean North County and St. Louis. We're going to make a difference. Our local community, where God has placed your family, that's who we love. That's who God is calling us to make a difference with. But if we're going to make a dent in this, we need more people here. 
We need people who lead the faith. People who are committed with their wallets, they're committed with their time, they're committed with their worship, they're committed to community groups, they're committed to making a difference, and they want to serve because they know saved people serve people. The second principle I wanted to talk about today is that we are givers, not just takers. That Christians are givers, not just takers. Today, when you leave church, we're going to give you an envelope. It's actually a reverse offering. Today and today only, we are going to give your family $20. The offering plate's reversed. And in that envelope, what we're asking you to do, and you'll see this on the ornament that's in there, is we want you to take that $20 and go invest it in our community. Bless somebody. Bless an organization that does good. Uh, Invest it and turn it into more and give it away. A reverse offering. A chance for us to demonstrate, starting today, that we are for our community. And there's also an ornament in there. What I'm asking you to do, you and your family, figure out where you want to bless. Is it a pregnancy center? Great. Is it a food bank? Great. Do you want to go find discount canned goods somewhere? Get your $20 and effectively give them like $40 worth of food and donate it right before Thanksgiving? Great. Go make a difference. And then fill out your ornament. Bring it back here next week. And what we're going to do is we're going to decorate our trees for the Christmas season with those ornaments. A demonstration of our love. An investment in our community. We literally want to decorate our church with acts of kindness and acts of love. Do you remember, if you were alive back then, I was, 1997, do you remember Apple's campaign? The campaign they came out with that Steve Jobs came up with was called Think Different. And it was funny because the LA Times, when they saw the first commercial for Think Different, they came out with an article about it. And in the article it said, you know, it's fitting that Apple has made this commercial. Because in the commercial is a dead guy's walking around because it itself, Apple, is a dead brand. And it was. It was. In fact, Apple had borrowed from IBM their own campaign. It was a response to a campaign that said, think IBM. It was a call to have the courage to push against the current way of thinking. Again, this was in 1997. And in 2001, Apple came out with the iPod, and everything changed. The stock price changed. The trajectory of the company changed. And then, about 10 years later, they came out with the iPhone, and it was all over. They had won. Yet IBM was telling us to think IBM And we know today, that kind of thinking is obsolete. And now Apple is one of the most successful companies in the world, one of the most successful brands in the world. 
think different. That's what I want us to do. Thousands of our neighbors, thousands of our friends and family do not attend a church for a variety of reasons. But this might be the biggest one. Many people have written off God because they think that God has written off them. And I think this is especially true. Many people have written off church because they believe the church has written off them. A year ago, uh, Pastor Chuck and I, we were preaching on values, the values that our church has. And I introduced a, a personal story. This is when we were preaching on found people, find people. And when, when I was sharing that message, I, I told you the story of my friend, Sean. Uh, Sean was one of the most brilliant, smartest people I've ever met, and he was very opposed to faith, very opposed to God, very opposed to the church. And one of the big reasons he, he gave me is, I've written, I, I believe the church has written me off. They don't care about me. And, and when I told them that I was planning to go study in seminary, to be in ministry, to be a pastor, he told me that I was wasting my life. But we spent that summer and we hung out and I ended up inviting him to a Christian concert and I, I think I promised him there'd be cute girls there. Um, there were. And, and then over time he asked me, like again, just all kinds of theological questions. And at that time I was just a, a college graduate. I, you know, I wasn't an expert in theology, but I just shared my faith and what I knew about God. And I think his biggest misunderstanding is he thought that God was against lots of people because Christians were against people. Like, it was his opinion that Christians hate gay people. That, that Christians don't like people who are going through addiction. Christians don't like people who are divorced. And, and I'm sure maybe some of that was justified, but I assured him that, that I love divorced people and that I love gay people. I don't hate anybody. I don't hate anybody. And I think God loves everybody because God sees everybody as his daughter or his son. And eventually he started to read the Gospel of John at my encouragement. And I, I can never forget the day that I, I dropped him off at his house and he went up the steps to his parents' house and then he, he came back to my car and I rolled down the window and I said, uh, did you want a goodnight kiss? <laughs> and his head went downtrodden and he said, I think I'm a Christian. And I said, I'm so sorry. Because he wanted nothing more than to be smarter than Christians, to be smarter than God. He wanted nothing more than for Richard Dawkins to be right. But he knew in his heart there was a God, that there was life after death. And in that moment, and it wasn't the only moment, but I shared that with you last year when we talked about found people find people, which has a lot to do with this vision. I shared with you at, the, at that time where, when I realized, oh, this is the kind of ministry that God wants me to start. This is the kind of ministry that God wants me to be a part of. This is now the direction of the rest of my life. I don't want anybody to ever believe that if they die, there is no hope for them. Or anybody who's struggling to think that there's not a God who is for them. No matter their trouble, no matter their struggle, no matter their sin. 
several years later, I got a call from Sean's fiance. They had wanted me to do his wedding, and instead she said there was an accident, and she asked me to speak at his funeral. And the, the words I had for my friends, there were hundreds of people in the crowd. Many of them were my high school friends. My teachers from high school, the ones who saw me as a teenager, which was a little funny, and his family on the front row with his fiance sitting next to his sister. And the hope I shared with them is that this is not the end. And although we see a coffin, it will not be full for long. He will live again. It was the first funeral that I ever spoke at, and it was one for my friend. Many people have written off God because they think God has written off them. Many people have written off the church because they think the church has written off them. They tried the religion treadmill, and it didn't work. They just got exhausted. Then they tried their hardest to be a really good person, but all they got was more exhausted. And the church was making the most recognizable symbol in the world. We were making it confusing. The cross is not a symbol of judgment or exhaustion. The cross is a symbol of divine grace, God's grace. It means God is for you, not against you. And God designed the body of Christ, his body, to be for you, not against you. It's just like the dead guys in the Apple commercial. It's time to think different. Reminds me of that story from Ezekiel in chapter 37. In Ezekiel 37, God takes his prophet at a time where his mood is low because the Jewish people are about to be in captivity again. Jerusalem is sacked. Their, their life is gone. Their identity is gone. Their homeland is gone. And God leads them, among all places, into a cemetery, a type of boneyard. There's just dead, dry bones everywhere. And then God asks him this question, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, again, he's at his lowest of lows as a prophet. He has been warning the people and encouraging the people, and they won't listen. And so all hope is gone. Can these bones live, Ezekiel? And Ezekiel's like, God, only you know. Only you know. I don't know. And then God said, Ezekiel, prophesy to them. Preach to them. Tell the dry bones to hear the word of the Lord. So Ezekiel's like, he prophesied. And he started to hear a rattle. And bones started to come together, bone to bone. And then tendons bound together, ligaments. And then flesh started to cover the bone. And then there was skin on the bones. And there was no breath of them. And then God yelled, prophesy to the breath, Ezekiel. Prophesy and say, come breath, that they may live. And he did. And they came to life in front of the prophet. And then God said to Ezekiel, these are the bones of my people. 
These are the bones that were dried up. They had lost their hope. But I am going to open up your graves, and I will put my spirit in you, and then you will know that I have spoken, and I have done it. Ezekiel said it, but God did it. Church, can dry bones live again? Or is doubt too strong? Or is our selfishness too strong? Is our greed too strong? Is our hypocrisy too obvious? Could dry bones live? One of my favorite stories is in 2 Kings. It's the story of Elisha, his grave. Elisha was a great prophet. He followed his mentor, Elijah, and he took on his role. And next to Elisha's grave, God's people were being attacked. They were being overrun by raiders. And while people were trying to bury the dead, they had one man and they were trying to dig a grave for him, but raiders immediately started coming in on them. And so they didn't know what to do, and so they just threw the body into Elisha's tomb. And when his body touched the bones of Elisha, the bones of the prophet of God, he jumped back to life and started walking around. Church, can dry bones live? Yes. God, you paid too high a price, the death of your only son, for bones to stay dry. When Ezekiel called, bones rattled. And just like the man who was thrown on the bones of Elisha, like the stone at the tomb in the garden, God, we know what happens when you say to move. So move in our church. We pray for dry bones and dead faith to come to life. Amen.